0: Welcome back to Cartels, Conspiracies, and Camarena. I'm Jack Llewellyn. Thanks for joining me. Before we get started today, I want to wish a happy, happy, happy Father's Day to all the fathers, dads, grandfathers, granddads out there. Speaking for myself, I know nothing is better. Sometimes nothing's more challenging, but nothing is better than being a dad. So happy Father's Day to everyone. All right, before we get started on today's topic, I want to go back to where we were in the last episode. Remember last week, we didn't have one because I was in Orlando with my daughter. But the week before, we talked about the idea of who might have been the person or the group of people that ordered the actual kidnapping of Agent Camarena. And we looked at four primary suspects. We had the Mexican government, We had Miguel Ángel Félix Gallardo, the CIA, and Rafael Caracantero. And then we talked about a couple of lesser known and maybe less likely suspects, Javier Barber Sanchez and Thomas Morlet in particular. When we were talking about Félix Gallardo, there are two points that I should have mentioned and did not. One is at... One of the Zuno trials, Jaime Kirkendall testified to threats, and, and that might be in air quotes a little bit, that he had received and the DEA had received from Felix Gallardo. Essentially, where Felix Gallardo is saying, hey, guys, leave me alone. I'm not the one you're concerned about. That's Rafael Caracantero. And the second is on the interrogation tapes, there are questions about a seizure of cocaine in Arizona. And that cocaine and that seizure almost undoubtedly relates back to Felix Gardo. So those two points should have been included in that list of evidence supporting the theory that Felix Gallardo was behind the ordering of the kidnapping of Agent Cameron. All right, the next few weeks, we are going to kind of talk around the same theme. We're going to look at some people, some events that help us understand, I hope, who might have been the person who ordered the kidnapping, who else was involved, and help, if not answer, at least understand better some of these unanswered questions that we have talked about over these many weeks. Today, we're going to talk about not a person, not an event, but a place, a house, a building. We're going to talk about 881 Lope de Vega. Before we dig into it, two caveats. Number one is I'm going to read to you a lot today. Hopefully, well, but I'm going to read from the actual trial transcripts in Zuno 1 and Zuno 2 because I think it's better to hear what the attorneys said themselves rather than me trying to, you know, summarize it somehow. We're also going to read from Jaime Kirkendall's book because Jaime was there in the immediate aftermath. He went to Lope de Vega. Yeah, he was involved in some of these investigations, so his record is one of the best ones that that we have. So I'll, Again, rather than me taking a couple of pages of, of his book and trying to summarize it, I'm just going to read from it. The other caveat is this: most of you already know that I worked on the defense team for Ruben Zuno Arce in Zuno One and Zuno Two. Zuno One, I, I was a summer associate at my law firm, so I was involved. But you know, I went to trial. I helped with research and stuff. I've told you about sitting next to Mata Ballesteros during some of the trial proceedings. But I wasn't in any way a key player in in that case, but I was around. By the time Zuno Two comes around, I'm a lawyer. I'm far more involved. I've made no secret of the fact that I don't think the prosecution of Ruben Zunarce was conducted in good faith. I don't think it was fair, and I don't think Ruben Zunarce should have been convicted, but that's not going to be my purpose today. My purpose today is to present evidence, let you make some determinations of your own. Mine are pretty clear, but my bias is going to come out a few times, and when I read from some of the things that uh, the prosecution, Manny Medrano in particular, says in closing arguments, my feelings towards those arguments and the person who made them may come out. So forgive me for that. But the goal here is not to convince you of anything with respect to Ruben Arsay, but simply to present the evidence. So... Why are we going to talk about Lope de Vega? Well, Lope de Vega really is kind of an enigma. It's There are certain factors with respect to Lope de Vega that have bothered me for a long time, and we'll talk about some of them. Um, and it's unusual, unusual in the sense that, you know, I talked last time, there's certain sources that I go to every time, right? When I'm starting to to research, a topic for one of these podcasts. One of the first places I look is Desperados, Elaine Shannon's book, and I've got one in my hand right now. I've got sticky notes all over it. It's a mess because I've opened and shut it and laid it down um dozens of times. And in fact, a page just is sliding out right now. Interestingly enough, Lope De Vega is not mentioned in Desperados. And part of the reason for that, it's not because Elaine did anything wrong. It's because, as we talked about before, remember, the kidnapping occurs on February 7th. It's not until April 12th. April 12th is the first time the DEA became aware of the existence of Lope de Vega. I've been to Lope de Vegas a couple of times now, a few times. And on my YouTube channel, I put up some pictures, some video from the outside. Every time I've gone there, and it's now a Montessori preschool. I went once when they were having a birthday party for kids. Went once and and talked to the lady who was running the school at the time and uh, or was at least in charge that day. And she didn't even know the history of Lope de Vega. And my interpreter guide friend, uh, and I kind of explained it in a shorthand version to her, and I said, "You know, can I stick my head in? Can I look? the The building itself has been remodeled since the day, but you know, can I can I take a picture of the inside? Can I look at the grounds? And the answer has either been no, or geez, you know, I'd let you, but I if somebody found out, I could get fired. And I never wanted to do that, so I haven't really gotten in and been able to look at very much. There certainly are videos on YouTube and other places where you can see an aerial view. But I thought I'd read what Jaime Kirkendall says about it. Because if you look at or listen to his description, you get a very good sense of what the, the building itself and the surrounding area really look like. So, my first foray into reading. The address. 881 Lope de Vega, a corner lot. The side street is named Seoul. The house has entrances on both streets a traditional driveway and garage on Lope de Vega, and the large metal gate for automobiles on Seoul. The grounds occupy about half the block and are surrounded by an eight foot wall, not unusual in Guadalajara. The house has two stories. It is shaped in something of an L with a small swimming pool or pond inside the L. There was a covered area on the opposite side of the pool and in the very rear of the grounds, which abut the street parallel to Lope de Vega. There was a tennis court. A small one room structure with a bath, perhaps servants' quarters, sits between the main house and the metal gate along the sole street wall. The house itself had three bedrooms upstairs, And one on the main floor, a formal living and dining room, a large kitchen, and maids' quarters complete the building. At the time, the furniture looked new. It was what would be called ranch or western in the U.S. The kitchen was large but a terrible mess with dirty dishes stacked everywhere. There were carpets on the downstairs bedroom floors, and one upstairs room was locked. Okay? So, that gives you a pretty good idea of what the building itself looked like. I want to talk about a couple of specific things um, that I think are are very interesting with respect to Lope de Vega. So, one of them is phone records. And I want to read again. And I hope Jaime doesn't mind in the event that he's listening to this, but um, Jaime talks in his book about some investigation into the phone records relating to Lope de Vega. And I think they're very important, very significant. And I also believe that they were never prov- This evidence with respect to these phone calls was never provided to the Zuno defense team or was never known about by the Zuno defense team during the Zuno trials. Okay. So here's what he says. Next to the pool was a covered area, and we're talking about the group again, a sort of patio. On a small table, there was a telephone, a multi-line type of instrument, which was not functioning at the time. Through its own sources, the Guadalajara DEA office learned the telephone number was 229890. However, the number was registered to the house using the address on Soul, 2492-L-SOL. Okay. In the name of Ramiro Nunez Rodriguez. Now, Here's, here's some of the important information. Long-distance tolls for the period from November of 1984 through the time of the search, and that's in April of 85, were obtained. The toll showed 25 calls in November and December to numbers in Mexico City and Moscota, Jalisco. Moscota is a small town two or three hours from Guadalajara. No calls had been made from the telephone in January 1985. On two days in February, the 6th and 7th, 44 long-distance calls were made. Remember kidnapping on the 7th. There were no tolls either before or after those dates in February and no further service to the telephone after that date. The numbers called on those dates were not called in November and December, nor were the numbers noted in November and December. Okay. So... sorry one sec okay so you've got that you've got November December nothing going on then you get calls in two days in February right now I want to go to another part of the discussion and give me one second I apologize one second okay here's what else is said With few notable exceptions, the 44 calls made from the House on Lope de Vega during those two February days were made to known drug traffickers or their associates, many of the numbers already of record with DEA at the time the calls were made. On February 7th, two calls were made to a telephone number in Mexicali, Baja, California. The number was listed to... um, I can't pronounce the name, so I'm sorry, but a real estate agency. Traffickers like to have real estate agencies have her fronts. This one was a well-known front for a local trafficker named Rene Martin Verdugo Yurkides. Whether or not the house was the actual site of the interrogation is still open to argument, but the calls made on those two days in February were to known traffickers or numbers likely used by known traffickers. It is pure speculation whether the traffickers were being called to elicit questions to be used by the interrogators, or summoned them to Guadalajara for a meeting. On February 6, Kiki was not in their hands, and there was no there were no calls made from the house after February 7. Many of the telephone numbers were of record with DEA from prior investigations in Mexico and the United States. Only 11 calls were made on the 6th; the remainder on the 7th. On the 6th and 7th, calls were placed to telephone numbers registered to Francisco Tejado Jaramillo, one number in Durango and the other in Tijuana. Francisco Tejada was a narcotics trafficker, DFS agent associated principally with Miguel Felix, and he had been mentioned by the informant from San Diego who passed along the information that a group of men from Tijuana were in Guadalajara looking for La Leyenda. A call on the 7th went to Rancho Camino Real in Notluck, Veracruz, that was owned by Arturo Izquierdo Airbrand, an old-time trafficker and brother-in-law of the ex-chief of police of Mexico City. Other calls went to known traffickers, as well as telephone numbers not previously encountered by the DEA. So you get the, the idea. Um, and then it goes one more. Toll records from the house in Los Angeles indicated that the occupants made 338 toll calls to 89 different telephone numbers between January 19 and February 14, 1985. Many of those numbers were associated with narcotics traffickers. Telephone tolls for the months of January and February 1985 were obtained for virtually all of the numbers called from the L- Vega. And all showed the same pattern. Many calls were placed to telephone numbers associated with DEA narcotics investigations. And many to the numbers called from Lope de Vega. However, the telephone number at Lope de Vega did not appear on any of those tolls. So all of that really, really supports the idea, does it not? That... Carl Quintero, you know, or that, that the activity uh, surrounding the kidnapping of Agent Camarena was occurring on the 6th and the 7th, that activity at Lope de Vega was occurring on the 6th and the 7th, and not earlier in February, and not later in February. Again, my, um, my goal is not to, to prove anything with respect to Ruben Zuno Arce. But in a couple of minutes, we're going to talk about the ownership question of Lope de Vega. And I want you to please keep in mind those toll records, the phone records, because okay? it's powerful. In the closing argument for Ruben Zuno Arce, Ed Medveen was the lead trial attorney, Um, my mentor, as I've said a hundred times on this podcast. He taught me so much and so much that it took me years and years to to realize that he taught me. But here's what he said, at least in part in the closing argument. He says... They make no allegation, and again, I'm not saying it's enough or not enough. They make no allegation, with respect to, Rubens Zojar say, about hair, no allegation about physical presence in Guadalajara, no allegation about phone calls, no evidence of any kind on any of these things. nothing, nothing to substantiate. We know from forensics nothing on Lope de Vega, nothing on the Volkswagen, nothing on the Mercury Marquis. Nothing on the interrogation tapes. No phone records of any kind tying Mister Zuno in any way to the kidnapping. Okay, so we've got Lope de Vega doesn't get found, you know, for months. We'll talk about that again. And then you've got this flurry of activity with everything go- outgoing, nothing incoming. On two days, the day before and the day of Agent Camarine kidnapping. So what else is important about um, Lope de Vega? Well, when Lope de Vega is discovered, if you will, DFS comes and says, hey, we got information about this house. You know. FBI, DEA go in. DFS has already been there. And there are clear concerns that at one time or another, some evidence was taken from Lope de Vega, probably by DFS. Some things were cleaned up. The pool, for example. I think the the way it's described is that the pool was such a disgusting mess (laughs) that FBI and DEA said, okay, we'll be back tomorrow. We'll deal with it then. And they come back and it's already been drained and cleaned. Um, Other items might've been taken from Lope de Vega. There was, it would appear, at least some effort to clean, not in the sense of tidy, but as far as evidence to clean the area. Nevertheless, there are forensics, uh, Tests conducted, we'll talk about them in specifics in just a second, um, and a couple of things come up. For example, hair that was matched in testimony to be that of Juan Ramon Matabiasteros and Rene Verdugo is found. I'm going to save for a later discussion the discussion of the issues relating to um, FBI agent Malone and his tests and the reasons why that uh, the evidence relating to those tests, including the hair samples from Mata and Renee Verdugo, um, were thrown out, and what that really means. We'll save that for later, but at least around this, the time of the trials, hair found at Lope de Vega that is testified to being a match to that of Mata and Rene Verdugo. Now, what does AUSA Medrano say in his closing arguments? It, this is 1992 closing arguments with respect to this information. He says, and I quote, an Atlantic VW was used to pick pick up Kiki Camarena. You heard the testimony of FBI agent, Mr. Malone. Remember, they got out to Lope de Vega and they processed everything, including vehicles for evidence, including an Atlantic VW. And in that car, they found some forcibly removed hairs of Kiki Camarena. Malone told you another thing. They also examined the guest house. You remember how they did it. They divided it into four quadrants, and then they used a special vacuum to pick up hairs and fibers. In the guest house, where Lopez told you they put Kiki Camarena, they found forcibly removed hairs of Kiki. So, the hair evidence used by the government was to say... Camarena was picked up in that Atlantic VW. And he was held at Lope de Vega in that guest house or servants quarters, if you will. And as we've talked about in before, Rene Verdugo, Mata had to have been there because their hair was found there. Okay, so that's the government's argument. Or the government's evidence. Let's put it that way. Two syringes are found. Bill Kuntz, who had just become the head of the newly um, titled Operation Leyenda, finds two syringes at Lope de Vega. They get attached to Dr. Humberto Alvarez Machine. Remember, we've talked about Machine, where... The argument was that he, you know, was the medical doctor. He was there stabbing Agent Cameron in the heart. You remember in, in the last arc, you know, Manny Madrano was overly dramatic about it. He stabs him in the... So they used those two syringes to say, aha, we got him. And, and that's part of the reason that that Machine ends up being, you know, abducted, if you will, taken to the United States, put on trial, and then the government can't prove its case. And he ends up um, being found not guilty and sent back to Mexico. So you've got that. There's also fingerprint evidence that gets produced at various times with respect to people who were at Lope de Vega. Now, Here's where some of this gets interesting. One of the primary arguments for the Zuno defense team was there ain't no forensics anywhere. None. In fact, let me tell you exactly what. I'm going to go back to what we, I already read this, but I'm going to do it again. Okay. No allegation about hair. No allegation about physical presence in Guadalajara. No allegation about phone calls. No evidence of any kind about those things. Nothing. Nothing to substantiate. We know from forensics, nothing on Lope de Vega. Nothing on the Volkswagen. Nothing on the Mercury Marquis. Nothing on the interrogation tape. No phone records of any kind tying Mr. Zuno in any way to the kidnapping. Okay. So what does the government say in response to that? Well, there's a couple of things that are kind of interesting. So he says, oops, hold on one second. Sorry about that. Okay. <laughs> one of the things that, that he s- says in um, closing is, oh, well, don't, don't be worried about that. Right? This is Manny Medrano um, and his rebuttal close in 1992. And besides, Agent Malone told you that as to hair, you don't always leave hair at a particular location. If you come and go quickly, that doesn't mean you leave hair, though. So a person could be at a location and not leave hair. As to the fingerprints, remember Agent Carl Collins of the FBI? I asked him... About that specifically, if there's any factors that would determine whether or not you do or do not leave fingerprints, he told you two things. One, physiological conditions on your body sometimes determines whether or not you leave a fingerprint. You remember he said something along the lines of, "If, if your hands are moist, the print may not be, the latent print you leave may not be red. And he also said the surfaces you touch some surfaces are more conducive to leaving a fingerprint. So the fact that we have not found fingerprints there doesn't show anything because for the reasons that I've just described to you. So I find it fascinating. I find it absolutely fascinating that the government says, you know, talk about having your cake and eating it too. If we find forensics, then that's really important. And if we don't, well, that's not important. So it it's it's interesting but it you know it does become pretty darn important the notion that um there was this evidence found at Lope de Vega that supported a lot of the government theories about the case. We're going to address some of those issues in a few minutes though. All right. One of the other really, really big issues in this case, or with respect to um, Lope de Vega, is the ownership of Lope de Vega. Okay. I'm going to read for you what um, Manny Medrano himself says. All right. So this comes from. Medrano's closing arguments in 1990, right? So this is the prosecution itself saying what happened. Special Agent Kirkendall testified for you that he interviewed Ruben Zunarce in San Antonio, Texas about September of 1986. Zuno came voluntarily to that meeting. He met with the agent and told him that he had acquired that Lope de, Ve- Lope de Vega property about 25 years ago as an inheritance and that at the time the that he got it, there were no buildings on the property, but he proceeded to build a house, a pool, an outbuilding, a tennis court, et cetera. Zuno also told the agent that he had leased the property to about the middle of 1984, and in the December of 1984, he met with Ruben Sanchez Barba to discuss the sale of the house, and the actual final transaction happened about January nine of nineteen eighty five, and then he says, "You have the house where the torture of Camarena occurred, and that house belonged to Ruben Zuno Arce. up to the moment of the abduction and the kidnapping." Now, <laughs> keep in mind, he says. <laughs> He admits that Zuno says that the final transaction happened on January 9th of 1985. Nevertheless, Mr. Medrano says he owned the house right up to the moment of the abduction of the kidnapping. And that is picked up on by Mr. Medveen when he talks about it. He says there was also a statement made about Loke DeVega that I want to deal with. And maybe he was caught up in the heat of the moment in the closing The prosecutor said, to the best of my recollection, that Mr. Zunel owned the house, and I quote, up to the moment, end quote, of the kidnapping. This statement is clearly inaccurate. It's not in any way supported in the evidence. In fact, I want to go through the evidence with you a little bit. The evidence is contrary to that statement. So, Here's what else gets said, and then, and again, I'm going to read a couple of pages here because I just think it's so, it's well stated. It's you know it's a closing argument, so it's supposed to be a summary. So it would be silly of me to summarize the summary. As you know, Mr. Kirkendall, who was the DA head in Guadalajara in 1985, asked Mrs. Uno to come talk with him. What he has basically established through the witnesses that was that Mr. Zuno acquired the Lope de Vega land from his parents. He began to build a house on the land from 1978 to 1984, leased it to Sergio Velasco sorry. And if you remember, you heard him come in and testify before you that he vacated in roughly May of 1984, that Mr. Zuno indicated an interest in selling the property, on December 22 of 1984, met with the prospective purchaser, Dr. Ruben Sanchez Barba, and an agreement was entered into to sell the house. Roughly, that is the testimony. There has been no challenge in the record to that testimony. Mr. Kirkendall, as you remember when he was called, indicated Mr. Zuno. One, he came voluntarily. Two, he didn't ask anything. He would just answer the questions. He went through the chronology on the house and indicated, gave the name of the tenant so it could be checked and indicated the sales transaction to Dr. Ruben Sanchez-Barba. Now, Jorge Gomez Espana is very important. He was the prosecution witness. You remember, he was the real estate person from Tierra Nova Realty. And he was the one who indicates the house was and who confirms that the house was sold to Ruben Sanchez Barba? And an arrangement was made between Ruben Sanchez Barba and his brother Jesus. And Jorge, that's Jorge Gomez Espana, testified. He was a prosecution witness. He testified that he saw Jesus, and Jesus told him, in essence, in January, that it was his house. He got furnishings and painted it and basically new carpeting, cleaned the carpeting, new landscape, and he tried to sell the house. And then he basically, the persons that Mr. Zunato sold it to, and sold it to by check, I might add, not cash, check. That person's brother then entered into an arrangement sometime later after fixing up the house, apparently with Carl Quintero. Okay, so you've got all this testimony. And then it goes on to say, you know, in fact, there is no testimony that he, Reuven Zonorce, was ever back in the house after mo- removing furniture on December 23rd. Hey, okay? so that's pretty, pretty interesting stuff, it seems to me. I'm going to follow this chain um, a little bit here. Um I will note that there's one other piece of evidence that I want to just make a quick deviation on. Lawrence Victor Harrison, George Marshall, whatever the heck his name is. He testified that he was, you know, the the uh the recording guru, the you know, it, um security and radios and everything. He did all of that for Fonseca and, and others, he testified that he was driving by the house in 1984, driving by Lope de Vega, had all of his fancy equipment, and that he heard Ruben Arce's voice as he was driving by. Now, put aside the fact that Lawrence Victor Harrison was a pathological liar. Um, you know, some of what he says may be true. Some of what he says is queerly false, and it's almost impossible to know which is which. Put that aside for a second. Just think about the, the the logic of this. You happen to be driving by Lope de Vega, which is going to be used for, you know, or be associated with the kidnapping. Months later, you happen to be driving by with your radio on, and at that moment— Miracle of miracles, you hear the voice of Ruben Zenoirce, and you know definitively as you're driving by that that's Ruben Zenoirce. Even more so is the fact that, again, there's the unimpeached testimony of Sergio Velasco Virginia, who says he was a tenant in Lope de Vega at the time of this alleged incident. We, Mr Medveen, Zuno Arsay's defense lawyer says we know Mr Zuno wasn't there because he had rented the house there is no evidence he was there he rented it to virgin and we know what Mr Harrison says is just not right it's not right no radio communication whatsoever so even Mr Kirkendall In his book says, and I quote, there was supportive evidence that he really had sold the house a month before the kidnapping, as he claimed. Okay. Want to talk? (laughs) Okay. So what we have, remember, going back to what we talked about with respect to the the first argument, Mr. Medveen is saying, Look, the defense witnesses say, you know, acknowledge this timeline, right? We know when, when it was sold. We know when the transaction occurred. And it's their witnesses, and they're totally unimpeached. So what does the government say in response? Because remember, Sergio Velasco says, hey, I was there. I lived there for years. <laughs> this is the response. In a rebuttal, a closing argument. On the issue of Velasco, I submit to you respectfully that he is a biased witness. This is a man who leased property for four or five years from that man. pointing to Mr. Zuno, Velasco is the man who admitted, although reluctantly, that he had a business relationship with Zuno. So I submit as to you, you should have every right to question his credibility. That's it. That's all. That's the that's the totality of the argument. Hey, he then says, "The defense has suggested to you that the house at Lope de Vega was not sold to Caro Quintero by Mr. Zuno, and they further want you to believe that Caro did not know Zuno, despite the evidence that you've heard." Well, there's difficulties with that as well, and I submit to you the following. Why would a man of Zuno's position, affluent, politically connected, why is he going to go out and sell the property directly to a man like Caro Quintero? You go through a middleman. There was this doctor, Ruben Sanche- Santos Barba. And I think that's Sanchez. Just um, an error in the, the transcription. The man who receives the property and then goes over to Tierra Nova. Ladies and gentlemen, I submit to you that company, Tierra Nova, was used sort of like middle uh, middle person to disguise or hide any real estate transaction between Zuno and Caro Quintero. That's the extent of the evidence in rebuttal, right? All right. Um, so, oh, sorry. Here's here's what else gets said in the 1992 trial by Madrano. He says, "Look, to Vega, who owns that house? You've heard testimony that in 1986, Mr. Zuno met with Agent Kirkendall at some Denny's or something, some restaurant in San Antonio, and Zuno explained the title to this house. He basically told Kirkendall, sorry, excuse me, that he got the house when he was married. He built the house there. He sold it pursuant to a gentleman's agreement followed by cash payment." And he, in January of 1985, he received two checks totaling 70 million pesos. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I submit to you that there's something fishy about this transaction because it is beyond the realm of coincidence that Kiki Camarena, after all these meetings that I've discussed with you, in which Zuno Arce is present, that the house chosen to take and torture DEA federal agent is a residence that had been, on paper at least, owned by Mr. Zuno Arce up to January of 1985. <laughs> so basically, he, you know, the argument becomes: All right, he made this transaction, and everybody said this transaction occurred, and not with you know, um, even though there's there's comments about cash, he does it in check There, you know, and there are deeds, and we're going to talk about the deed in just a second. Despite all of that. Well, the fact that Camarena ended up at that house means it had to have involved him. I mean again i don't I do not want to be here trying to prove anything with respect to Rubens So but can you see the logical inconsistency there or the logical fallacy? The fact that it happened proved that it happened. In essence, it's crazy, it's absolutely crazy. We, um, in closing, so that argument that I just made, um, comes from closing by the government in 1992. On rebuttal, here's what Mr. Medveen. Ruben Zuno, RCA's council says, maybe Mr. Zuno would give up some politicians who did live at Lope de Vega. I mean, the Lope de Vega story is very simple, virtually uncontradicted. There's no evidence. Okay, I was going to skip, but let me go back. He got the land in 1970. He built the house, sold it to a person he'd never met before, Jesus Sanchez Barba. There's no evidence he ever knew him before, and there's no contradiction of that. Sold it for 70 million pesos. Never in the house again after December 23rd. Turn the keys over on January 11th to Jesus Sanchez Barba, who he had never met before. How Carl Cantero got there, he got there. But you know, one thing for sure, if it was your house and you are a leader, you're a leader of this plan and you're not sure what's going to happen, you're not going to have this thing happen in your house. I would think that would be the farthest place that anybody would want to kidnap in their house. So he sells it. You've heard that there is a deed that went in that shows the purchase price as different than the 70 million pesos because under the directive of the governor, there was it was up to the buyer to put what he wanted as the assessed value. But there's no contradiction that the sale was for 70 million pesos. They could have brought up testimony to show it wasn't for 70 million pesos. They could have brought up these witnesses if there were any to say that wasn't the price and any question when Mr. Zuno left the house and was never back there again. They did not. Okay. So what do we know now? We know that the house had been owned by Zuno for a long period of time. We know that it had been rented for a long period of time. We know that there was a transaction involving the real estate company and Jesus Sanchez Barba and his brother. We know that Carl Quintero eventually obtained um, the house, but there's almost no rebuttal to that right almost nothing now there is a deed that shows again a different price and that's just because and and there was testimony about this that's just because the the buyer has the ability to say what the value should be right and i don't know where we are um if you sell a house and there's any personal property the the seller gets to say how much the value of the property was. um. So there's that. And then there's an issue of the timing of the recording of the deed. But that's it. That's the only questions out there. And again, the fact of the matter is, is there was a deed, right? So if you think about this, as, as Mr. Medveen put it better than I will, if you are Ruben Zuno Arce, and if, at the, as the government maintains, you are at the head of the Guadalajara Narcotics Enterprise, whatever you want to call it. And you are advocating, let's let's get Camarena, right? The DE agent who's ca- causing this problem. Let's go get him. You get everybody on board. And while you're doing that, while you're having these conspiracy meetings, you start arranging this transaction so that you take De Vega out of your name. And you move it through the, the, the real estate guys. And it goes to Carl Quintero. But you do it by check. And you record a deed. And then you say, I got a great idea. Let's take him to that house. That's where we should do, do the kidnapping. That's where we should do the interrogation. Maybe that makes sense to somebody, but it doesn't make sense to me. Okay. I also want to um, read some one other thing from Jaime's book. Because, again, I, I, I just like the way this um, this comes out. One second here. Okay. He says, Guadalajara's drug magnets had so much money that they had to look for ways to spend it, and there was always someone willing to help. Real estate was a favorite. Since most of them had come from high, humble beginnings, they wanted the biggest, the loudest, the brightest, and the most expensive. Miguel Felix owned at least one real estate company himself and others utilized. A family named Sanchez Barba had a real estate company named Terra Nova, which provided service to Ernesto Fonseca and Rafael Carol, amongst others. The Sanchez Barba family was related to the student activist turned dope dealer, Javier Barba Hernandez, who we have talked about before. After several million dollars were seized in California as illegal drug proceed, proceeds, several members of the Sanchez Barba family sought out the DA and offered their information and services in exchange for the return of the money. One of the family members, Ricardo Sanchez, even agreed to testify for the U.S. government in any judicial proceeding. Now, listen to this. During several lengthy interview sessions, they identified Luxury home after luxury home they had acquired for Rafael Caro Cantero, Ernesto Fonseca career and their associates. One of these houses was located at 881 Lope de Vega. Their story was that they were constantly looking for houses for Rafael Caro, as he was having trouble with his wife and did not like to stay in one house too long. He also liked big houses with swimming pools and large yards usually half a city block or more, as he liked to host loud parties with a lot of people. Allegedly, Ruben Sanchez Barber, one of the brothers who owned Terranova, approached Ruben Zuno Arste and asked him if he would like to sell his house. The witness claimed that Zuno was not told who the buyer would be. When Zuno agreed, a price was negotiated and the house was turned over in January of 1985. Rafael Caro was not happy with the house and made Sanchez Barba paint the interior of most of the rooms and put in new furniture. Goes on. Guillermo Sanchez, Willie, another cooperating witness. Again, these are witnesses cooperating with the DEA. Offered another interesting story concerning the house on Lope de Vega. After Rafael Caro Quintero occupied the house on February 6th, he found the telephone did not work and called Willie to complain and demand it be fixed. Willie went to the house later on the 7th, accompanied by two men, a friend named Jorge Gomez Espana and a Guadalajara doctor named Umberto Alvarez Machain. They met with Rafael Caracintero and listened to his complaints. While they were there, they saw a large number of Rafael Quintero's bodyguards, as usual, armed to the teeth. Willie afterwards sent a man to repair the telephone, which still gave trouble and required yet another trip by the repairman to mend it. The Sanchez brothers gave the interviewing addresses or interviewing agents the addresses of many houses they had purchased for the traffickers, which added to the DEA's growing database of information about the Guadalajara drug operations. So There you have DEA investigations, witnesses going to the DEA saying, hey, we will give you information in exchange for some of the money that was seized, and we will testify. You remember one guy, hey, I'll testify for you. And they say the same thing that Zuno said, or at a minimum, it corroborates Zuno's testimony. So when you put this all together, what does that mean? If you look at the ownership, if you look at the phone records, it becomes pretty clear, doesn't it? That this was a house owned by Carl Quintero, that Cameron Reina was picked up on the 7th and likely was taken, at least initially, to Lope de Vega. Okay. So that's... Lope de Vega in in a nutshell, if you can call fifty minutes uh, a nutshell. Here are some questions. Hey, okay. I think there are a few things that are very interesting. Oh wait, can I go back? Sorry. Also, want you to know um, that there was testimony. From another government witness, a guy by the name of George Gomez Espana, remember that he testified that in January of eighty-five, he um they were repainting Lope de Vega, uh new rugs were to be put put in, etc. And then the government says that's the way you know that any forensic evidence deposited at the Lope De Vega house had to have occurred after January of nineteen eighty-five. Right. So we government says has to be after 1985, and there's no Zuno. We have the ownership issue shows it went to Rafael Caro Cantero. Right. That starts to narrow down a little bit of who was involved, and in some respects, in, in the kidnapping. Right. A house that Caro had just bought had only been there a couple of days kidnapping occurs. Forensics are found at the the guest room or the guest house and in the Atlantic that say that those were hairs of Agent cat All right, here are some questions for you number one and we're as I said, we're going to talk about this later, but can we trust? the forensic evidence based on issues with agent Malone. And if there are questions about the veracity of that forensic evidence, it cannot be sufficient to say we have questions or there's credibility issues relating to the forensics and the hairs around Matabiasteros and Rene Verdugo, but not Kiki Camarena. Remember, it's the same forensics. So that's number one. Number two, maybe this bothers nobody else, but why was um, obvious... Evidence left behind. Okay. By that I mean, we know that the DFS was in before the DEA. We know that, as I said, the swimming pool was cleaned and and things without the the FBI being there and without being able to do uh, forensics and things. And yet, there were things that were left, such as the syringes. Does that strike anybody else as odd? Now, again, just because it's odd doesn't mean it didn't happen exactly like that. It just makes you, you think a little bit, I, I believe. Here's the other one, though, or the next one. How is it that Lope de Vega was an unknown entity? For so long, two months. And remember, during this time, you've got FBI agents all over the place. You've got some good MFJP officers out there looking. You've got FBI people in town. Everybody's looking. And remember how successful, how good the DEA office in Guadalajara had been. Not just Kiki Camarena, but everybody there. They had their sources, right? Right. They had their informants. And nobody says Lope de Vega. Nobody. None of the bodyguards get drunk and talk about Lope de Vega at a bar. Nothing. It never comes up for two months. And when Carl Quintero was arrested in Costa Rica, brought back to the, to Mexico, He's questioned. I don't know if I want to call it interrogated, questioned, interviewed, whatever the case may be, but he doesn't mention Lope de Vega. He mentions a house or a building in uh, off of Avenue Mariano Otero, which is a major street that kind of runs by Lope de Vega. And so... Some people have hypothesized to me that rather than saying the the little side street, Lope de Vega, he just said the main street. Other people have said that, you know, who've lived in Guadalajara the whole life, so that's ridiculous. Nobody would ever do that. Why wouldn't he just mention, say, Lope de Vega, the street, because they're they're, even though they're relatively proximate, one's a major street that runs for a long ways, so it doesn't make any sense to just say that street. To me, that's a little bit unusual. And then the last thing that ties in is why is it? Go back to the last narc, and I hate doing that, but think for a second about the last narc. What did they say? Agent Camarena was interrogated for 36 hours. All right put aside how they came up with that figure. But if that's the case, that puts the interrogation well into February 8th, right? She puts it into February 9th almost. Because remember, he's picked up two o'clock in the afternoon on the 7th. Why are there no phone records for February 8th? Nothing. Remember all the stuff that I read from Jaime Kirkendall's book. I submit to you that there's more to the Lope de Vega story. There's more to the kidnapping of Agent Camarena story than we currently know. Or at a minimum, there may be. And I've got a couple of theories on what that might be but we're going to hold those for a later episode. All right. Uh, We're going to be a day late next week. I'm at a booksellers conference in Chicago next weekend. So we'll probably record on Monday rather than the normal Sunday. Thank you, everybody who's listened. Again, if you have any questions about whether or not I quoted accurately All of the transcripts are on my website, www.jackalone.com. You can find them easily. Look at Jaime's book, buy it, and then look at it. See that I quoted it exactly as it is. As always, if you have any questions, comments, think I completely missed the boat on something, let me know. Always want to hear it. Happy Father's Day again, and we'll talk to you next week on Cartels, Conspiracies, and Camarena. Take care.